Well, good morning, everyone. Hopefully you're doing well. As my wife said, the weather's nice, and you're glad that you're joining us. We're in a series called The Doubters Club, and a club we all belong to, <laughs> some degree or another. Today's topic is what Jesus claims. So that's where I want to start uh, on your outline. People who doubt Christianity. It's not because of the way Jesus lived, and it's not because of the way Jesus loved. It's because of the what he, Jesus, claimed about himself. Now, it's interesting in our culture, uh, lots of people are spiritual. They can talk about God or some other spiritual entity. Um, point, point of, athletes point up sometimes and so forth. That's all perfectly fine. Uh, celebrities do that. Uh, acceptable. When Jesus enters the conversation, uh, it sometimes shifts. Um, people get uncomfortable. Uh, some people even get, uh, get, have to go to court because of some stand about Jesus. Now, most people, well, people in Jesus' day liked Jesus, most people did, and most people like the concept of Jesus today. It's just the claims of Jesus that give people uh, second thoughts or doubts. So I put it on the outline that way. They just don't like the exclusive claims. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. Um, So we're going to look at uh, probably the most dramatic example here in a minute. So Jesus was, on your outline, ridiculously humble, right? Who else goes around washing people's feet? Um, Unless you get paid, that's your job. It wasn't his job, he was a rabbi. So, he was ridiculously humble, but he wasn't modest at all, right? Going around saying, I'm resurrection and life, I'm the door, I'm the way, etc., etc. So, um, excuse me, John 14, last night of Jesus' life, he's talking to his disciples, and at the beginning, he says, I'm going going away, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And... um, Thomas, we talked about the first week in the series, he asked Jesus, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we didn't expect you to go, but if you're going, we don't know where you're going. We don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? Then Jesus said something that is so, I guess, controversial to some people. Uh, here's what he said. He said, I'm the way. All right, you want another way? I'm the way. Not only am I the way, I'm the truth. And on the life. Now, this is the part that people have trouble with. No one can come to the Father except through me. There's only one way to God the Father. That's through me. If you had really known me, you would have known my, who my Father is. Want to know what Jesus is, uh, God is like? Look at Jesus. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, for many people, that's just too exclusive. How arrogant of you to think that you are the only one that knows the right way. And it's got to be through Jesus. Um, is everybody else wrong? Uh, we're going to talk a minute, for a few minutes about other major religions in the world. All these major religions in the world are wrong, but you guys have it right. Another concept that people struggle with when they talk about spirituality and faith and doubt is it doesn't matter what you believe long as you're sincere. Maybe you 
you've thought that. Maybe I'm certainly you've probably heard that. It seems inclusive, right? You know, you can believe what you want, you'll be fine. I can believe what I want and we'll be fine. The problem is, is what? It's not true. When I always talk about uh, sincerity, I always say, use the example, if I have a drink up here and I think it's something healthy for me to drink and it's poison, and if I drink it, I'm sincerely dead, right? Sincerity doesn't prove anything. You can be sincerely wrong as well as sincerely right. Now, other religions, I want to say this. There's some beauty or... or even truth in, in other, the other major religions of the world, right? The problem is they're just not all the same. So if they're not all the same, you can't have the same conclusion. So quickly, and I apologize, I'm not going to talk a lot about these religions. Buddhists, for example, do not have a god, and you just get to this process of rebirth. All right? So hopefully you've lived a life worthy of being born, re, your rebirth being better then you're last. Hindus have a god, but their god is impersonal. He's kind of just out there, and he leaves us alone. And uh, karma, you know, bad things happen to bad people. It doesn't always happen, true. And good things happen to good people. Neither one of these religions has a concept of forgiveness, all right? There's a sin. We have sin, and we need forgiveness for it. Neither one has that. Now, Muslims, for example... They have a personal God, and they don't believe in idols like the Hindus do. And then, of course, we get to Christianity, and we have a personal God, but we believe in a a sin nature that needs to have forgiveness. So the problem is they can't all be right, right, because they're not all the same. Um, I watched this uh, short interview with Keith Green, who died in the early 80s. He was a musician. Uh, Anyway, in his 70s, he was studying these different religions, and he found out something was fascinating. The Buddhists think that Jesus is a good guy, and the Hindus believe that Jesus is a good guy, and the Muslims believe Jesus is a good guy. Even the Jews believe he's a good guy, just don't believe he's the Messiah. But none of the other religions believe in the other religions. So he came to the conclusion that this Jesus guy must be right because everybody believes in him for some degree. So, when we doubt... I want to give you three things to consider, and especially if you've never become a Jesus follower, these might help you to end your doubt. First, consider the ministry of Jesus. The church of Jesus' day, the the Jewish Judaism in Jesus' day, uh, snubbed a lot of people. It snubbed people that were um, mentally handicapped. If you had a mental handicap, you couldn't go to the temple for example. It snubbed people who uh, were poor, and it snubbed people especially who were, how do we say it, big sinners, uh, lack of morals, etc. So the religion of that day snubbed this group of people. Now Jesus comes along, and he kind of just does the opposite, doesn't he? So we're going to read a little bit about it in uh, Mark's Gospel. Jesus went out the lakeside, this beginning of his ministry, Mark chapter 2, uh, Sea of Galilee, and taught the crowds that were coming to him. He walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, we basically remember him as being Matthew. This is the same guy, Matthew. And uh, he's a tax collector in Galilee, 
and that was a, a kind of a center of trade. So you not only tax the people that lived there, you tax the, the, the traders that would come through there. And so tax collectors were looked down upon because they were considered traitors because they were collecting taxes for the Romans. And then often they were dishonest and they would collect more than they should and they became rich. So they were considered kind of the low rung of the totem pole as far as, as, as moral people. They were the biggest sinners. And he says this one, Matthew, Levi, follow me and be my disciple. He didn't look for the best guy in town, the most moral guy in town, the most pe people looked up to. He picked the person in town that people looked down on, become one of his disciples. And the amazing thing is, Levi got up and followed him. Now, what happens next is really interesting. So, Levi invites Jesus and his disciples to his home. He's probably got plenty of money, can feed the, all these guests. So, he even invites other people. Now, if you're a tax collector, who are your friends? The other tax collectors, because <laughs> nobody else in town likes you. So along with many other tax collectors, except for kind of the other people that are looked down upon, the sinner, the big sinners. This translation says disruptible sinners. Now notice this comment. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. Now, we like to think, you know, in our church, most people are moral, right? Upstanding. And Jesus' followers, most, many of them, not most, but many were people that people would look down on for one reason or another. So, of course, the religious experts are watching what's going on. So the text goes on. When the Pharisees' scribes saw who shared the table with Jesus, they were quick to criticize. The scribes said to the disciples, if your master is such a righteous person, holy person, then why does he eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, the worst among us? They had this concept. If you're want to be righteous or holy, you can't be associated with people that weren't righteous or holy, or I call it the cooties would spread, you know. You would get the, the unholiness off of them, so they separated themselves. So if Jesus was going to be holy, he, he, he can't be hanging out with these, these folks. Now, Jesus uses this wonderful comeback. Of course, Jesus was brilliant, right? But here's what he says. When he heard this, here's his comeback. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Anybody go to the doctor when they're healthy and just say, hey, doc, I want to let you know I'm just, I'm doing fine now. Just want to let you know that. No. When we get sick, we go to the doctor. So he said, sick people do. So I, Jesus, have come to call not those who are righteous or not sin sick, right? But those who, now, this translation is the word think. Now, is anybody righteous in their own self? No. But some, they thought they were, right? But those who know they are sinners. When I know I'm sick, I go to the doctor. If I think I'm well, I'm not going to go, even if I am sick, right? So we see this tremendous compassion of Jesus for the worst of sinners, uh, immoral people, for people that are physically handicapped, and for the poor and the hurting and the suffering. We need to have the same ministry, right? We need to embrace those who are looked at, down upon by society and the outcasts and those who are poor and hurting, just like Jesus. Jesus also performed a bunch of miracles. So if somebody is lame, he would heal them. If somebody's blind, he would heal them. Uh, he would 
he would uh, feed people sometimes. So he, he performed these miracles. The interesting thing is the Pharisees couldn't debate that, right? Somebody was blind, now they can see. They can't argue with that. What they did was they just wanted him to stop doing it because he was attracting people and they were following him instead of the, instead of the Pharisees. So they couldn't argue, but they wanted him to stop. Now, all of us here that consider ourselves Jesus followers, we're in the same boat as those folks. We were sin sick, and because of Jesus, we are made righteous. We had to come just like Matthew and the other tax collectors. So when we doubt, we need to consider the fact that Jesus ministered specifically or particularly to people like us. Secondly, we won't spend too much time on this because this is kind of the Easter thing we talked about a couple weeks ago. When we doubt, or if you're in doubt, consider the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the fact is God created mankind, and mankind sinned, and God hates sin because sin separates him from his creation. So if something separated you, for example, from your kids, because you have children, um, you wouldn't like that, right? And so God didn't like that. Now, the problem is us, the kids, can't fix it, right? <laughs> so God's got to fix it. And that's exactly what he did in sending Jesus Christ to earth, live a perfect life. He could be sacrificed, not just for one, but for all, and then conquer death by raising from the dead. So on the cross, he says, I can't imagine doing this. I'm on the cross. These people are spitting on me and yelling obscenities at me, and they're the ones who got me up, put up here. And I say, oh, Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. I'm going to say, hey, when I, when, I, you know, when I leave this earth, you take care of them. That's kind of, I'm reading through, uh, that's what David did when he told Solomon. I'm dying. When you take over, you take care of these guys that they weren't nice to me. But Jesus isn't that way, right? He, he said, Father, forgive them. And then he said, it's finished. What's finished? Father, I came to do what you asked me to do. I'm going to make it possible for you and your sinful people to be in fellowship, in relationship, through my shed blood. So, um, in Acts, Acts chapter 2, we know that Jesus has left and Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes and his sermon, Peter's sermon, 3,000 people are added to the church. Then you get to chapter 3 of Acts. You know what happens? Peter's going to the temple, and there's this lame guy outside the temple, because he can't go in the temple, and he's a beggar, and he's hoping Peter's going to give him some money. And Peter comes up to him and says, um, sorry, don't have any money to give you, but I got something I can give you. I can make you able to walk if you like. So the guy jumps at that, right? And Peter heals him, he gets up, and the first thing he does is do what? You know what he does? He goes into the temple. Because he never could go in there before. So Peter takes advantage of this and he starts to preach a sermon, we would say. Right? And, he's, and he says, you killed the author of life. You killed Jesus. But God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this fact. So if you read through the, through the Gospels and through the book of Acts, hundreds and hundreds of people saw the resurrected Jesus. So it's, it's like a fact. When you have a bunch of witnesses see something, it's fact. So it's a fact. Um, the only other option, 
realistic option is that the disciples came along and stole the body. Okay, we got some fishermen, we got a tax collector, some other guys. Now, we, we think this is a brain trust that could come up with a scheme to steal Jesus' body from the Roman soldiers. How likely is that to happen? Not very likely, right? And then on the flip side, most of these disciples, because of their faith, were persecuted and eventually died. Now, do you face persecution and die for something that's not real, that you just made up? Of course not. So the evidence of the resurrection is almost indisputable. Um, so we tend to doubt. Well, no, lots, lots of people seen it. And, and the church has existed for 2,000 years based on the resurrection of Jesus. I think it would still be here 2,000 years later if it was all, all, all made up. I don't think so. Thirdly, in our doubts, let's consider the message of Jesus. And again, that's where people stumble because it seems too exclusive. Isn't, but it seems to be. So, John records it this way in 1 John. He says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, I've told you this before, I'm a skeptic, so when I read something or hear something, my first thought is not to believe it, which basically means I'm testing it. All right? I've got to compare it to something. Of course, one of the things we do is compare it to this buyer. This book, this Bible, God's Word, living Word. So, if somebody's saying something that contradicts something in here, I know that's a false prophet. Now, it's often not that easy, because most false prophets are kind of tricky, right? So, he says, he gives us a test. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ had come in the flesh is from God. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in Scripture, it often talks about Jesus coming. Now, he was born, obviously. But what does coming imply? Well, he came from somewhere, right? So we would say he preexisted as God, and he left heaven and came to earth. The other interesting thing is, all the religions of the world talking about escaping this world, right? So it's something better. Christianity talks about redeeming this world. And we can flip, go all the way to the end of in, in the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. And it says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, a redeemed new heaven and a new earth. And then it says, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, He will wipe every tear from their eye. No more tears. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. No more death. No more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Some of us live with pain. It's going to be gone. All of them are going to be gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne says, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for I, what I tell you is trustworthy and true. We don't need to doubt it. It's true. So what do you believe? We're all going to die, right? What happens next? Does cease to exist? Is there an eternal realm? Is there an eternal realm of good as opposed to evil? Some believe there's a heaven but no hell. What do you believe? Another way to ask that question, what is the meaning of life? Um, I'm getting long, I'm closer to the end of my life than I am the beginning. I, I, I look back and say, you know, 
has my life had meaning? Well, one way is to try and find truth. That's been part of my life, <clears throat> my meaning in life, is finding truth. The question is, though, what is your truth? Now, for me, this is, this is truth, but for some people, it's something else. And if it's something else, often people get to the place where it no longer appears to be truth. So the third thing is they abandon truth, right? And so they kind of live, uh, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow I'm going to die, right? Just go for the gusto, you know, grab everything you can, because eventually we're going to die. Another source of meaning in life is, is, is love, in particular, finding that person to spend the rest of your life with. Of course, you're going to find that perfect person. Has anybody found that perfect person yet? There's no perfect persons out there, and you're not a perfect person. You put two perfect persons together, imperfect persons together, it's really not the source of the meaning of life then, isn't it? So again, it seems so arrogant to say that we had the, had the truth. I put it on your outline. Consider Jesus. He claimed that he is the truth. I usually summarize it this way. I call it the three L's. Either he was a liar. He knew he wasn't, but he said he was. He was a lunatic or crazy. He really believed he was, or he really was the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's, that's kind of your options. The interesting thing that we think of truth as fact, Jesus said, I am truth. Truth is me, a person. So when I'm dealing with the truth of Jesus, then my question is, am I too bad for God? Am I too bad for God? Well, how are we made right with God? By placing our faith in Him. It's not our good works. Maybe I'm not good enough, right? It's not in our church or any church. It's not in any religious system. It's certainly not in our own efforts. Uh, Paul, wrote, Paul said it this way pretty clearly in Romans chapter 3. He said this, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not right with God. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm right with God. That's it. And this is true for Everyone who believes. Talk about exclusivity and inclusivity. Everyone means everyone. That's inclusive, right? No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they thought, however they acted. It's the same. In fact, the next verse, we're all of sin and come short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. Can't do it ourselves. It's only by faith in Jesus. So I put it on your outline this way. It's Christ plus nothing. It's not about your baptism or about your good works. It's about church membership, about your money you give to the poor. Not about any of that stuff. It's just Christ plus nothing. Traditional way of saying it is this way. Religion is always spelled do. All other religions of the world, that's why Christianity, I don't really call it a religion, because religion talks about how can I get to God? What can I do? How many good things can I do? More good things than bad things. For I can get to God. It's all about me, actually. It's about how much I can obey, and if I obey enough, God will love me and it will accept me. That's all religions of the world except for Christianity. Christianity is the exact opposite. <laughs> it's already done. In fact, we couldn't do anything. So God 
loved us while we were yet sinners. Not when we obeyed, while we were yet sinners. And then we obey out of love in return to God. So Christianity is not exclusive. It's not. It's for everyone. It's the most inclusive of all religions. Everybody comes, everybody's invited, and everybody comes the exact same way. I don't know if you've done the uh, devotionals on Down in God, but we'll listen to them again on your outline. And if you haven't, or maybe do them again a second time. Let me pray with you. Father God, we thank you so much that you're completely inclusive. Anybody and everyone is welcome, and you desire that all come. And Jesus' death and sacrifice and resurrection is big enough and powerful enough to forgive my sins and your sins and everybody else's sins. We do doubt God, and sometimes you just need to remember. Remember what you were like when you were here on earth, how you treated people, the fact that the resurrection is almost indisputable. So that takes care of our sin problem. And even though we might struggle with the fact that you're the only way, my perspective is at least there's one way. And I thank you, God, that you provided it in Jesus Christ. And if you are still full of doubt, never come to that place of accepting, believing, I pray today is the day you do that. That you'll consider these three things and say, yes, I need to believe. Uh, yes, I need forgiveness or sin. Some other religions don't have that. Christianity has forgiveness. Our God is that big. Our God is that loving. Our God is that gracious. Father God, we thank you that this is a process and we fail you, we'll fail you in the future. We failed you in the past, we'll fail you in the future. But you'd still love us unconditionally, it says. So you love us on our good days as, you love, as much as you love us on our bad days. How awesome is that? Thank you, God. That you loved us enough to send your son, only son to suffer and die so we might live and have a relationship with you, and spend eternity with you in heaven. And we thank you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.